Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome back to the Bunker Daily with me Aisha Hazarika. The strangest and most surreal parliamentary sitting of our times has just staggered to its end. Hooray! But some people did manage to get a few things done and one of them is Walthamstow MP Stella Creasy. With fellow MPs, she brought forward an amendment to the Domestic Abuse Bill to make misogyny a recordable motivator for crime, essentially identifying it as a hate crime. The bill is still in play, and since the debate, Stella has been running boot camps across the country. This has nothing to do with your muffin top. It's all about misogyny and how to get misogynistic crime classed as a hate crime. She's also been campaigning for childcare and early years support after the Chancellor inexplicably left it out of his measures to improve the jobs market and tackle youth unemployment. And all of this while changing nappies as a new mum. Famously, Stella is such an indie kid that last November she gave birth to her daughter Hetty to the sound of There She Goes by the Lars. Hello, Stella. Hey, Aisha. Well, thank you very much uh, for joining us. How are you and how is Hetty? Uh, she's she's cracking annoyingly she's now at that age where you can't actually just leave her somewhere and come back two minutes later and she's in the same place because she started moving which is absolutely terrifying and delightful at the same time and they can go at quite some pace can't they they can sort of really wriggle around quite fast uh, I think she's going to dispense with the idea of crawling and go straight to walking because her trick at the moment is to pull herself upright she's got kind of um, what's her face from uh, the Terminator, Catherine O'Connor's uh, shoulders. So she's pulling herself <laughs> up on everything. Uh, she got walk. guns. She got baby guns. Uh, well, you know, it's when I hear this kind of murmuring about "I'll be back," I start being really frightened that I've got to take <laughs> one eye open. Now, every single music fan can remember the last gig they went to before the lockdown and the one that got cancelled. Stella, what were yours? Or did pregnancy and childbirth stop you from going down the front for Porridge Radio at the Hackney Moth Club? (laughs) As if I'd ever go to Hackney. Um, (laughs) My last gig was obviously the wedding present. In fact, David Gedge came to Walthamstow. I was quite heavily pregnant, um, but I wanted to make sure that Hetty was getting good uh, advanced tuition so in fact she started to to move in my tummy um when when he started to he was doing an acoustic set which was absolutely brilliant and my gig that got cancelled is suede which I'm absolutely gusted about oh, for suede wow. live are one of the best bands I've ever seen live they're just brilliant but um the very first time I went, time I went to see them live I went with a friend who has subsequently and sadly died and so we were all going to go a group of us um for a kind of memorial uh, evening um, and the gig has been put back a year um, but we had been planning to go and see Suede at Ali Pali again 
Oh, that would have been amazing and obviously in very moving circumstances what i just loved does the wedding present just revolve their gig schedule around you now because well you'd have to ask them that but but there might be a bit of a suspicion about it um the wedding present absolutely no we have a fantastic venue in uh, walthamstow called the emd that we've been spending 16 years now trying to get back into public use there are some brilliant videos of a very young mayor um who was me going we're going to fight to save the emd uh, and i'm just getting older all the way through over the last 16 years but i've always said the reason i want to get it back was to stage the indie gig of all indie gigs to end all time because i believe that walthamstow is the sunny dale of all things good and proper and so should be the, the, the the place where this all starts and david knows that he's on a promise to play that gig so okay let's start with your campaign a really important campaign to have misogyny classed as a hate crime in the domestic abuse bill. Just explain to us a little bit about what you're trying to do and why it's important. Yeah, so um, this is something we've been working with a number of organisations for a couple of years on now, ever since um, a number of police forces first started to do it. It's a very simple premise that if you are a woman right now, you're protected from discrimination and harassment and abuse in a workplace by legislation, But as soon as you step out onto the streets or you go home, you're not. Uh, What does that mean in practice? It means that two thirds of young women report being sexually harassed on the streets uh, and a third of them have changed their behaviour as a result, as in they haven't gone out. They've they've lived in a life of fear. Uh, We know that crimes like domestic abuse have high repeat rates. So there's patterns of behaviour that point to somebody being a victim of domestic violence. And we know in particular it's women from minority communities who often experience abuse and harassment and have a really horrific ex- uh, experience trying to report it. Now, right now, if somebody harassed you because of the colour of your skin or your sexuality, the police would have a duty to record that and record that as a form of hate crime. And also that would be taken into account in the sentencing of the person who was caught doing it was put to, put to trial. But if somebody harasses you for being a woman, that isn't taken into account. What does that mean in practice? It means that often it takes a long period of time before there's a recognition if, for example, there is somebody um, targeting women in a particular area. It means that for victims of domestic abuse, all too often those patterns, it takes a long time for people to to recognise and act on. And it means that we can't recognise it in our um, legislative framework. And what the police tell you about hate crime is that actually if you come forward and report it, you can help it stopping happening not just to yourself, but to other people. Mm. What we're trying to do is make misogyny be classed as other forms of hatred, as a form of hate crime, so that the police would have to record where a crime is motivated by hate. And I want to be really clear, we're not talking about creating any new forms of crime. This is about existing crimes being categorised for what they are and what they're motivated by. And then courts could take it into account in the sentencing. And so on a practical level, would that be, um, let's say, catcalling or would it be um, if somebody was sort of ha- like harassed on, a, on, a, on, a, on public transport or when it came to domestic violence, would it then change the categorisation of, 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 let's say, domestic violence? Sure. So, I mean, often it's interesting in the time that we've been campaigning on this, um, absolutely people say, well, this is about criminalising wolf whistling. Actually, wolf whistling, harassing somebody in the street is already technically illegal. It's just that nobody ever does anything about it, essentially giving a green light to those people who think it's an acceptable thing to do to harass women just going about their daily business to carry on doing it. I mean, I've always said I'll stop this campaign when I go to the wedding where the bride gets up and says, 
Well, I met him because he followed me down a dark street shouting, get in the back of the van, love, I'd like to feel your breasts. Um, I haven't yet been to that wedding, so I'm pretty sure that uh, street harassment is not something that people actually want to um, encourage, let alone say is somehow an acceptable part of modern day living. But actually, crucially, where this is already happening, so five police forces are already treating misogyny as a hate crime. What does that mean when a crime comes forward and the victim says, well, actually, I think this was about me being a woman, um, they record it as such. Um, Nottinghamshire was the first police force to do this. It's not been wolf whistling that people are coming forward about. It's sexual assault. It's rape. It's kidnapping. Because what it does, as with other forms of hate crime, is it changes the culture in which this kind of behaviour is acceptable. You know, nobody thinks or it is acceptable now to shout racial abuse at somebody in the street. Rightly, we ask for action to be taken. And what changing misogyny to a hate crime is and recognising when it is involved in an illegal activity does is it changes the tone and the expectation, not on the victim, but on the perpetrators. So what we've seen in areas where they've brought this policy in, um, say those five police forces, is that victims are much more likely to come forward because they're confident that the serious forms of sexual abuse and assault that they're facing, including things like domestic violence, will be taken seriously. So they have trust, they have greater trust. in, And that means there's been a high level of reporting and that helps you detect and prevent those crimes. Right now, if you're uh, a woman from a minority community or you're disabled uh, or you're gay, you have to choose which side of your identity has caused someone to be hostile to you. Recognising misogyny as a hate crime allows us to see the victim in her own right and to have a recognition that she is being targeted not because of one side of her personality, but because of who she is in her entirety. So a woman of colour, for example, could have Mm. it, could have a crime registered as misogyny and as a racially motivated attack. So it's not about saying, well, you have to have been wearing a hijab, for example, to be considered a hate crime. It's about recognising that people can be hostile to you for who you are, no matter what you've done, and that's not acceptable. And just tell us, what's the state of play with that amendment? Um, has the, have you got a lot of support for it? And what, what happens next? Yeah, so what's been brilliant, and I must pay tribute to, there's over 20 organisations now, groups like Citizens, who've been doing fantastic work at a local level in communities across the country, making the case for this. Uh, the Joe Cox Foundation, the Fawcett Society, Hope Not Hate, uh, Refuge, Women's Aid, Our Streets Now, who are these phenomenal, I mean, God, Aisha, they make me feel lazy, these phenomenal young women <laughs> campaigners um, who've been leading action on this. And what we've got is a coalition of over 20 different organisations who all support the change, uh, including several police representatives and, the, and people from those police forces. Um, and we've been lobbying MPs and the Metro mayors who obviously oversee the police and the police and crime commissioners. And I'm really pleased to say that we've now got over 30 MPs who are committed to supporting the change. And we've got five Metro mayors who've committed um, to supporting the policy as well, including um, the mayor of London, uh, Sadiq Khan, and the mayor of Manchester, Andy Burnham, and the mayor of Liverpool, Steve Rotherham. And that's been down to local grassroots campaigners going and explaining that, you know, too often women in this country, when they get on the bus, have to put a set of keys in their hands to walk home. And that can't be the world we want to live in. You want everyone to be able to walk around free from fear. So you need to take away fear. And what are you confident that you will be get, get enough support to, 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 to get it passed for it to become a clause in the domestic abuse bill? 
Well, two years ago, we secured off the back of the upskirting bill, which is a classic example of a misogynistic crime. I mean, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens because there are certain people, mainly men, who think it's their right to take photos of of, of, of women's uh, uh, well, up a woman's skirt, and 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 think that that's acceptable. Uh, but we managed to get uh, the government to agree to review all hate crime in this country. So currently, right now, the law commission is reviewing all hate crime. Um, this year, they came back and they told us, having looked at the review, they think there is the case for including misogyny in our hate crime framework. And so now they are going to uh, consult on what that might look like. So we know the legislative change is coming, and once that comes, then the police will have to provide the evidence through recording it. What we were trying to do through the domestic abuse bill was to get that recording going because they don't have to wait until the Law Commission reports to be able to do that. Um, So the response we're getting from the government is, well, we need to see what happens with the Law Commission. And we're saying it's not an either or. Um, We know that we've got the domestic abuse bill back into the House of Lords when Parliament returns in the autumn. There are other legislative opportunities. And one thing I've always believed is that you have to keep making your case um, I always um, take a lesson from the great Caitlin Moran, who said, put the word yet at the end of any of your sentences. So if people don't support it, you put the word yet and that keeps you going. So we have a number of different pieces of legislation we're looking at to keep bringing this issue back and getting more and more support and interest in it. Because obviously, you know, right now, people are rightly concerned about coronavirus. The irony for us, of course, is the evidence that's showing that sexual harassment and assault and domestic violence has gone up during lockdown. So even women in their homes or women leaving their their houses to go out, the little that they have, are facing more and more abuse and harassment. So it's never been more important to send the message that this isn't acceptable and do something about it. And also very important to to record um, the the levels of uh, misogynistic crime right now, because it's, as you say, a very important um, moment. Um, I just also wanted to mention something else that was obviously in the domestic violence bill but rather not in the domestic violence bill and this was um the fact that migrant women are are penalized um mps voted down the clause to lift the no recourse to public funds rule which is part of the hostile environment do you think there's any chance of women like you in parliament being able to get that changed Um, i hope so obviously the the um move for the domestic violence bill itself moves to the House of Lords now. So it's had its third reading um, within the House of Commons, but hopefully there can be amendments made in the House of Lords that then come back to the House of Commons. And we'll continue to do that. I would encourage all of your listeners to go and look at the work that Women for Refugee Women are doing on this, because it's absolutely heartbreaking. And also the South All Black Sisters, um, because right now there are two classes of women in this country, the women who have the protections that the domestic abuse bill will bring, and the women from uh, migrant communities who won't, because still too often their status is dependent on the person who sponsored their visa. And that gives that person a huge amount of control over them. And this is just a classic example of it and what needs to change. Um, it's also something I feel very strongly about because it means that we're not compliant with the Istanbul Convention. And people might have seen that there's now a real push across Europe to roll back on the Istanbul Convention. So I think it's really important that the UK, which is one of the few countries that hasn't yet ratified that convention, speaks up to it. But one of the things it's very clear about is that it shouldn't matter your status, whether you're able to access support and protection from violence as a woman. We can't say that in the UK right now for migrant women because we make these distinctions about people's access on the basis of their status in the in the immigration system. That has to change. And I hope that Lords will do that. I know we'll be trying to petition and lobby our, our, our colleagues in the House of Lords to do that in the coming weeks. 
Now, I just want to move on to talking about the COVID crisis, lockdown, and yeah. the the disproportionate effect on on women. Now, obviously, you know, there's a lot of the deaths have been um, have been male, and and you know that's that that that's a fact. But if you look at the, the how the sort of burden's been spread from you know just the pressures of homeschooling, we talked about domestic violence, a lot of women's jobs are um, more at risk. Um, you know, it's been a very, very tough moment for the sort of gendered aspect of, of the of the economy. And do you think that? I mean, what are your what's your kind of take on that? And let's start, I suppose, with with childcare because it does feel that that's an area that women are really taking a hit on, like every which way at the moment. Uh, well, actually, we should start with pregnancy because it starts yeah. first. And what we're starting to see is pregnant women uh, being put onto statutory pay rather than being furloughed or being told that they have to come into work um, otherwise they're going to lose their jobs full stop and of course uh, you're supposed to be protected when you're pregnant women facing redundancy even though they're pregnant um, because employers are using the fact that we're in a a pandemic to bypass the traditional employment rights Um, and women being given inconsistent uh, guidance in fact I've got cases right now of women who are being who are in their late trimester of pregnancy who've been housed in houses of multiple occupancy, even though the guidance says that you are somebody who should be shielding. Same as there are two thirds of uh, women who want to return to work in the next couple of months can't do because they can't get childcare. The TUC research shows us that. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out that, you know, if the schools aren't back full time, if nurseries are closed, then those people who end up sharing the burden of childcare responsibilities are going to find it harder to be able to go back to the normal working patterns that they previously had. It does take somebody being in the room to raise that and ask that question. And what I found in raising questions about childcare, uh, virtually in Parliament, because obviously I can't get childcare myself, um, is that it's a bit like most things with women, where it's kind of like talking Klingon, in that you say the word women and the ministers hear the word women and they don't hear anything else. Mm. So they'll come back to you with their answer about something to do with women, which is absolutely nothing to do with the question that you've asked. So, yeah. you know, I've asked about the provision of childcare. I've asked about the childcare sector. Again, you know, good luck trying to socially distance three-year-olds. So if you can't socially distance them, you can't have as many of them in a nursery, which means that you haven't got as many places generating the funding that keeps them open. Most nurseries in this country were not particularly making a lot of money. They were just about breaking even. As soon as you reduce the numbers in them, a lot of them are going to go bust. Obviously, a lot of people can't take their kids back to the nursery just yet either. The Chancellor hasn't got a scooby about any of this. When I asked him about it, it was like talking Klingon. And he started talking about the self-employment scheme as though that was relevant to nurseries. There is so much more work that needs to be done to prevent a massive cliffhanger of women's unemployment and redundancy and destitution coming in about September, October. And I'm very concerned because I'm not sure I see that work being done at a national level as yet. I just wanted to talk about the, I mean, it's carrying on the theme of of a very masculine type of politics. Um, You know, you and I talked after the conviction of of Charlie Elphick, former Tory MP for sexual assault, and we have seen the arrest of another unnamed MP for alleged um, reap. What, what's why is this problem not getting any better, Stella? Because I think people presumed it would do because it was surfaced, 
And that was an un, a misunderstanding of what was behind it. I mean, there is a systematic challenge, as I say, which comes from the default. And the default isn't just about an individual. It's about a culture and a way of life that means that if you are in a position of power, different rules apply. And all too often, being in a position of power is being a white man of a certain age of independent means. It also means that you get to set the terms of the debate. And one of the things I think we have to do is change the way we talk about these things. So we very often we talk about the people who come forward. We talk about what is missing rather than what we're asking people to go into. I am very clear that we have to change the culture of politics, of business, because this is not unique to politics of of our society before we ask women and those from minority communities who are excluded to change to fit in. But all too often we do it the other way around. It's what I like to call the Piers Morgan effect. So Piers Morgan will tell you that we've had, you know, a woman monarch and we've had two women prime ministers and we've had a woman run the fire service and we've got a woman as a leader of the the Metropolitan Police. Um, You know, because there there are women everywhere that he can see. And it's that sort of, well, if they can do it, others can do it, job done. And it misses the point. Until it is unexceptional that you have women in a diverse range of places and we change the culture in which sexual abuse and harassment is a perk of the job rather than professionalism being the attitude that all must take, these things will continue on. What I particularly worry about and where I think there's a really uncomfortable conversation for all of us is that because this is about the culture, it is, let's call it what it is, the P word patriarchy, women can be part of it too. So there are women in all walks of life who have sat by, looked the other way, kept quiet, not supported a colleague to come forward when they've experienced these things it is a very difficult thing to do to support someone. It's a very difficult thing to do to come forward. But this will only change when we do all work together to say this is no longer acceptable and we flip the conversation. So we start talking about the perpetrators being held to account rather than women having to come forward or what women haven't done to make it easier to come forward. Absolutely. No, I completely... Well, I was actually having a conversation with somebody about the uh, situation, about the alleged rape. And it was um, an older gentleman who actually said, his first question was, has she got form on this? I mean, that was the first question. One of the other things I feel very strong, so I I have experienced maternity discrimination uh, since I became a mum within my job. And actually, it's been interesting. It's been the older men who have called for um, provision to be made for me to be able to have childcare and be able to be part of conversations, be a part of leadership roles. It's the younger women and the older women who said, well, I managed, why can't you? And it's part of that same culture that says it is the way it is, that there must be a reason why somebody's coming forward to make a scene rather than somebody behaving inappropriately or somebody being part of discrimination. And that's why look, we can have all the independent processes that we need. I mean, we still need to go a long way in having those independent processes for dealing with sexual abuse and harassment. But fundamentally, we also need to change the culture and environment that people are going into. Well, look, I'm, I'm so, you know, Stella, it's been, it's been <laughs> so great to, to have you on. You and I could just kind of, like, we could banter on for like another sort of two hours. But um, our time has come to um, an end. Thank and you I so much for joining with the us. I have mob from Hackney coming down the road at me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just have one question before you go. Um, have you got your first indie gig in the diary for when 
hopefully when not if live music ever starts up again who is I'm it and where say, i can't it's genuinely true so um not only have i got the the, the reorganized suede gig but um brilliantly i saw that martin rossiter is touring doing jeans old back catalogue um now that makes me incredibly aged and dated but immediately <laughs> i bought tickets for that and i thought hell or high water babysitter or not covid or not even if i have to be the only person in the room i want to be there to hear him do olympian <laughs> And do you have an album that's been getting you through isolation? Actually, I've been, I, I, because I've been watching a ridiculous amount of TV rather than listening. <laughs> like all the telly. To music. Yeah, so I've actually been more into um, TV than I have been. I mean, look, obviously, I, I had a listen to Taylor. Taylor Swift. I, I know it is a cry. Look, I, I loved Lover. I thought Lover, I thought the, the, the song The Man, again, a bit like the Hillary documentary, will really, really wind you up. Um, and, and Georgia Smith as well. I've done a bit of listening to quite like that, but I, I thought the new Taylor was a bit, it's a bit Mumford and Sons, isn't it? Wow. Stella, that's harsh. I mean, yeah, it's but, pretty but harsh. fair, but fair. Harsh Come on. But fair. Been, harsh, but you know, fair. It's I a part that... of love. Get over it. Um, <laughs> well, Stella Greasy, thank you so much for joining us um, on the Bunker Daily. Listeners, thank you for listening. Remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday with the main panel podcast on Wednesdays. You can get each edition early and without adverts, plus our glittering range of Bunker merchandise too. When you back us on Patreon, search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again. Bunker Daily was presented by Aisha Hazarika and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Bunker Daily.